a hush <laughs> falls upon the room, as it should, because there are three stark, staring lunatics <laughs> sitting up here. <laughs> so be careful, anything could happen. Or at least, that's what a journalist whose name, well, I don't even know if he's a journalist, really. <laughs> just somebody who writes a blog, who will remain nameless. I'm not going to say his name, but this is what he wrote on Tuesday, June the 17th, 2014, at, apparently, 5.16am. And apparently we're the crazy ones. I don't know about you, but I was asleep at 5.16am on Tuesday, June the 17th, 2014. He wasn't. He was writing, they shriek, they rage, they cheer, they despair, they exult, they scream, they laugh, they cry. There's never a non-emotional moment in the lives of Australia's left-wing ladies auxiliary. <laughs> He's got a turn of phrase, hasn't he? Isn't he clever? Whose psychosocial behaviour... Oh, he knows a few big words. Whose psychosocial behavioural disorders are becoming ever more dramatic following Tony Abbott's election. I think a few people have developed some psychosocial <laughs> behavioural disorders since that time. Only one of them, however, can reign as our solitary monarch of madness. <laughs> we have that solitary monarch of madness. <laughs> Yes, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the redoubtable, the irrepressible, the genius of craziness, that is Clementine Ford. Yay. Only one her can stand above all the others, wailing and howling. This guy is just going for it. He's, he thinks any minute now the Nobel Prize for Literature would be heading his way. While the rest look on and ask, where's the Ritalin? Do you take Ritalin for psychosocial behavioural disorders after you're 12? I don't know. Um, while the rest look on and... Oh, sorry, I've said that. In the search for this nation's most unhinged hysteric let the nameless, because he put his own name in the poll because he's so modest, uh, let the ex-poll decide. And he runs a poll, who is Australia's craziest left-wing fright bat? He names people like Margot Kingston, me, in case you don't know, I'm Jane Caro, <laughs> chair of this panel. Our other complete lunatic sitting here <laughs> next to me, you can tell by the blue hair. Well, congratulations to me, because this I've done. That's the problem with left-wing women. They just can't let a single conversation go by without putting their voices in. That's right. <laughs> That's the crazy Gretel Colleen. Yes, and she really is completely nuts. Um, <laughs> this is the utterly lunatic Elizabeth Farrelly sitting here, uh, of wonderful... <laughs> ..fabulous columns in the Sydney Morning Herald every Thursday, which I practically leap out of the door, not at 5.16am, I'm not that insane, to get the paper and read. Um, others on the list were Vanessa Badham, the winner, Clem Ford, Clem Basto, Mariki Hardy, Jenna Price, Catherine Deveni and Anne Summers. I don't know about you, but I was fairly thrilled to be listed in that company <laughs> and, in fact, had I been left off, I'd have been absolutely fucking furious. <laughs> 
And uh, a lot of women I know who were left off were deeply offended. They wondered <laughs> what they'd done to get left off that list. So here we are, fright bats together. And basically we're going to have a little session talking about are we all fright bats? Is that just, I don't know, shorthand for female? Uh, or is it shorthand for feminist or both? Who knows? And the way I'm going to run it, because I'm a bit slack, is I'm going to let Clementine speak and Elizabeth speak. They can say whatever they like, because after all, they're crazy, so who knows? <laughs> then we'll have a bit of a chat. Then you can have a bit of a chat. There are two static microphones, one over there marked one, another one over there marked two. And if you have a question, go and stand over at the mics and then we'll have a big, crazy, freewheeling, God knows what is going to happen kind of a conversation. Does that sound okay to everybody? Excellent. Clementine? Well, I think it's going to be impossible to make it through this next hour without mentioning the name of the, the journalist <laughs> who started this poll. So I'll just put it, it out there. It's Tim Blair. Um, it wasn't the first time that Tim Blair had called me a fright bat. Uh, he had referred to me as a Fairfax fright bat a short time before that, and I'd put that into my Twitter bio. Um, after I'd done a line of, of anti-Tony Abbott T-shirts and... I thought you were going to say something more interesting, like after I'd done a line of coke when you said that, but anyway. <laughs> well, how do you think I came up with the idea for the shirt? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, no, so he'd, he'd sort of, he'd already called me this, this fright bat, and I was kind of amused by it in the sense that you're amused by a puppy trying to get your attention. Um, and it, I actually, I'll say from the outset, I'm, I don't really embrace the term fright bat. A, a lot of people since then have enthusiastically taken it up, and that's great. If that, if that makes them feel empowered, then that's a wonderful thing. The only reason I did it was because I knew that one person in that poll was incredibly upset by being dragged yet again into Tim Blair's sort of bizarre, weird, sexist obsession with left-wing women. Um, in fact, two people in that poll have been quite damaged by the fever with which he's gone after them. And I was concerned that their upset over this was going to overshadow and elevate this poll into something that would upset them even further. So I made the decision, whether or right or wrong, to kind of hijack it a little bit and take, take the link and take it to Twitter and Facebook and say, please vote for me for this. Because I, I thought that if I won, it could be something that the, the humour would help diffuse it. Whereas if it was only his readers voting for this ridiculous poll, that it would actually cause further damage to this person's already quite damaged sense of self because of, because of how Tim Blair repeatedly went after them. So I made that decision hoping in the end that the humour would help diffuse it and then this was an issue that could just go away. Unfortunately, it's kind of taken this word and turned it into a thing now that people are using it. And again, I said, that's great if that's what you want to use. I'm personally not really interested in using it. I think, it's, I think it sort of gives him further attention that he doesn't deserve and really... I guess encourages future behaviour like this from him because he knows that he has an audience for it now. I think fundamentally my, my main source of anger and frustration with this is that the News Limited Network allows paid journalists on their payroll to be able to use a very, very privileged position of having a daily 
blog that has access to thousands and thousands of readers, that they allow him and Andrew Bolt to use this platform to be able to harass not just women, but to harass Aboriginal Australians, to harass gay Australians, to harass trans Australians, to harass anyone who disagrees with them. They are given this platform to be able to do so. And I think that those are questions that we should be being, that should be being asked more so perhaps than this embrace of the term. Okay, thank you. Elizabeth, what do you want to say about being a fright bat? Uh, you didn't win. <laughs> I'm sorry about that, no, nor did I. I didn't, I mean, I didn't try, no. to be honest. That's what they um, all which say. Which is what I always say, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I was, uh, I, you know, when it happened, I was in um, South Africa uh, giving a talk somewhere else, and so I probably saw it the minute it came up because it kept coming up on my Twitter feed and I kept thinking, I was about to go on stage and I kept thinking, this is weird, what's, what's this happening in my phone? And I didn't know what a fight bat was and it wasn't until afterwards that I read the thing and, um, and I was sitting <laughs> in this game lodge, as it happened afterwards, uh, reading the piece and writing my response to it and, and I really thought at first it was funny um, because it is funny and stupid, really, and, uh, but, it, but there's, there are sinister undertones, it seems to me, and that's kind of important to recognise because uh, it fascinates me that the same people who purport to, you know, hate Islam because it's uh, nasty to women <laughs> uh, do the same sort of stuff. And it's not, I mean, I recognise that it's uh, at a lesser scale and degree, but the impulses are so similar. And I, too, had, had um, come off uh, the worst for wear with Tim Blair I think it was about nine months earlier, and I'd written something about cycling. <laughs> oh dear, Elizabeth. <laughs> Which is always guaranteed to, you know. Um, and uh, I'd also blogged something. I had a blog at that stage, which I still have, but I don't really do anymore, partly for this reason. Because I wrote the piece and then sent it off and it went to bed, and then I went to bed, and then I woke up in the night and thought, oh God, I should have blogged about this because I had some photos of some people um, blocking cycle lanes and th thought that would be interesting to do as people do, as sort of vigilante cyclists do in New York and post these photos. And by the time I woke up properly for the next day and the column had been published, I had something like 3,500 comments on my blog, all of them hating me, um, and hating me because I was um, uh, female, educated. You know, there was this... Um, She's got a PhD, whatever that is, you know, in urbanism. <laughs> and um, stuff, it was anti-clover, anti-bike lanes, of course, anti-educated um, women on bikes, essentially, or any or all of those three. Um, and well, we were told back in the 1900s <laughs> when women first got on bikes yeah. that this would damage their reproductive organs. This would lead to the end. Oh, well, that's right. Yes, yes. <laughs> mm. um, and so that was really interesting and, and uh, the encounter with Tim Blair was, again, on the one hand sort of funny and on the other hand sort of nasty, really nasty because of the sense, not, <coughs> not of really what he said, although that was nasty, but of what his follower, with the way he could stir people up and clearly did that in a way that feels to me to be quite cynical. I think he probably half believes what he says, but he says it because he's paid to stir up what someone called Tim Blair's winged monkeys who just attack. Um, and you just watch them go and they just choose a subject and tear it to pieces. And it's normally female and left wing um, and educated <laughs> because they're the worst ones. Oh, yes. <laughs> you don't want to go near them. But it is, it is dangerous and it is the same impulse that stops girls going to school in 
you know, Syria. So I think it's really, we, we just need to call it for what it is. Well, I made that point this morning in the, there was the How to Be a Feminist panel that, <clears throat> you know, men in the West who are really secretly, at the very least, sexist or outright misogynists, love to point to the Middle East as being this apparent, <laughs> like, centre of terrible oppression mm. of women that, you know, particularly Muslim women even in Australia are mm. horrifically oppressed mm. by those men. So there's all these racist undertones there as well. But as I said, there's this, this implication that we could treat you like this. <laughs> we don't. That's we right. choose not the to. So you be grateful, so you, ladies. Well, not, not just you be grateful, you best be on your best behaviour. Yeah. Because yeah, if you else. step out of line, then mm. we'll, we will treat you like this. We have that power. Mm. There is very... Misogyny is misogyny everywhere mm. you go. And the impulse is the same. And that's the oppression of women, the control of women, and the subjugation of women. And... And women who step outside of that or who challenge that will be subjected to mm. violence, to mm. threats, and at, at a base, to ridicule. Mm. And this is what I find so dangerous about not just Tim Blair, but about Andrew Bolt, because Andrew Bolt loves to do this too. Mm. And I've, I've used that winged monkeys line before, <laughs> that they, they sort of... They put just enough information into their columns to provide all of the contact details for the women that they're talking mm. about. And they kind of filter it out to these... If you're talking about unhinged people to their <laughs> readers, who then will... I can always tell when Tim Blair or Andrew Bolt has written about me because mm. I'll wake up and my email account mm. is full mm. of, yes. you know, just... Not Build. even... Not even mm not even particularly violent necessarily emails, just irritating emails. Yeah. Or my Twitter feed is full of these mm. people that calling me all sorts of names and stuff like that. And it's very easy for them to then abrogate responsibility. I've had conversations with Andrew Bolt where he said to me, how dare you suggest that I do this? How dare you suggest that I encourage abuse of people? Because of course they don't come out and say, I think that you should contact these women and tell them what you think, because they know exactly what their readers are going to mm. do. Mm. I'm interested too, a lot of the language in this fright bat two paragraphs is really, it is about craziness. Mm. And if you think about uh, the number of women in, I mean, we talked about the 1900 just a minute ago, <laughs> the number of women in past centuries who spoke up or didn't fit the mould or weren't exactly the way that, let's put it frankly, male society felt they ought to be, actually did get locked up in lunatic mm. asylums. This mm. idea that women mm. who speak up for themselves are nuts, mm. we can laugh about it, and I personally think we should laugh about it, because it dis what it does is it disempowers it to some extent. If, mm. uh, they use ridicule against us because they know they that think it's, it's going to work. It's powerful. But if we turn that ridicule background onto them, it has the same effect mm. on them. It, de it de diffuses their... Um, hatred makes them look silly, and that's important. But at the same time, I think you're both right. Mm. There's an incredibly scary side to this, and we have seen women, and women in the Middle East, for example. There was that young woman who was uh, got on the internet and took her top off and said, this is what... She's been locked up in a lunatic mm. asylum. Mm. So there is still this impulse to um, literally exclude from society women who speak up. Could we go back there, do you think, Elizabeth? Well, look, I mean, you, we've all been reading, I imagine, that case of, you know, the female surgeon who said, um, you oh, know... Oh, just give the guy the blowjob and be done with it. <laughs> well, not, it's not a guy. This is, these, are, these are top medicos we're talking about. These... I mean, it's not just any old workplace. This is the elite minds of a generation. And we're saying to half of them, yeah, if he wants sex, give it to him, because otherwise your career will be ruined. Mm. I mean, that's... In Australia, yeah. now, now, 
And this is the official advice, and I'm thinking, wow, this... I mean, we talk as though fem feminism's kind of real and we're, and we're lucky to have it, and to some extent that's true, but at the same extent, if these, you know, the brightest of the bright people are still behaving in this way and normalising that behaviour, I'm thinking, you know, what's really changed? That actually could be in Saudi. Yeah. You know, it could be... And we would, and if it were, and well, reported that way, we'd go, that's so primitive. Well, <laughs> in fact, wouldn't those people in Saudi Arabia who defend the rigid segregation of the sexes say, see, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. exactly yeah, why yeah. we they do it. You shouldn't be in the workplace. You shouldn't be in the workplace <laughs> because men are mm. predators, women are like, uh, I always think they describe us as if we're like little um, incendiary bombs, you know. We, we go off and destroy well, I, things I by our I think that's true, and I think it's... Um, it's fear. I mean, yeah. it's clearly fear mm. of what might happen if they stopped oppressing women in this way. Could, a, a, as though, I don't, I don't know what exactly it would be. Well, some of them it, might lose their goddamn jobs because half of... the competition would be back in the game. <laughs> <laughs> um, or, or we might get seriously productive as a yeah. culture and do something really amazing, yeah. which is actually why I think it's important. It's not just important for us and for women's rights. It's important because the bigger agenda is saving the planet and we yeah. need women's wisdom to do it. And it needs to be fully engaged and recognised. Otherwise, I think we're stuffed. Yeah. I think it's really interesting you bring up that, that article from the, um, about the female surgeon saying that to the young interns. Um, I mean, imagine you're a nicely brought up, the sort of young women who get to do medicine and go into being um, working in that area are usually extremely well protected, often went to girls' schools. A lot of those girls' schools tell them they can do anything they like, blah de blah de blah Not all of them, but a lot of them. Wouldn't getting that kind of message when you go into the workplace be enough to send you crazy? Well, I mean, firstly, I don't really know what the makeup is of medical students, and I don't want to really talk to what kind of girl enters medicine. But I think that that is, outside of medicine, that's a message that is um, relevant for all women, particularly in mm. Australia. And whatever their background is, once they enter the workforce, well, I should, I should clarify and say, particularly young women who feel like we've achieved a state of equality now, once they've entered the workforce, might find that view challenged. Mm. And it's obviously not just in medicine that these oh, things no. happen and no, it's no, obviously no. not just the extremes of that that this happens in. But, I mean, I, I obviously am deeply critical of this message that this woman is putting out there. But I also feel quite sad for her in a way because oh, she's too. operating in a system where she's really internalised that idea that to be a woman in her field and to succeed, she has to essentially allow herself to be assaulted. I mean, I think that that's a deeply troubling reflection on what is perceptibly one of the most privileged positions in this country. Mm. And if we, if we can accept that that is a problem there, then how many other problems are boiling beneath the surface? And, you know, it's, again, coming back to this constant comparison between our apparently progressive society as opposed to everything else. The reason that we get called fright bats and the reason that we get ridiculed and the reason that these tropes about the crazy, hysterical woman who's advocating for, oh, my God, the ludicrous idea. possibility yeah. and idea of her own liberation is because it's deeply frightening to people who, who exist in this country and in, across all societies, but absolutely in Australia, and we'd make a mistake of thinking that it's not applicable here, it's deeply frightening to think that these structures of power 
that we might actually have some success in challenging them. You know, I think that uh, I always feel it's hilarious when people say that I'm crazy or I'm hysterical or that I'm oversensitive or that women are oversensitive because I have never come across someone more emotionally oversensitive, humorless and angry than a men's rights activist. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, you know, we can laugh about that, but I, I think that these are questions that we need to be asking and these are things that we need to be deeply concerned about because it's really easy to sort of take up this illusion of equality and it's also easy to posit equality as being this thing that um, will we'll say, that, say that power exists here. It's easy to posit equality as being this thing where these people here kind of rise up to meet it and then all of a sudden everyone's equal. Well, that's obviously incorrect because not only is there not one plane of power down here, there's multiple planes of different power, but essentially the way that we talk about equality now is about achieving equality that still rests on the labour of discriminated against and oppressed people. And unless we care about everyone and care about achieving liberation rather than equality for all people, then we won't actually progress. And the problem is as well that we don't point out these realities, and, and a lot of times feminists are almost afraid now to talk about the reality of patriarchy and the, real, the reality of how that affects our lives and affects women in different ways and affects us in um, varying levels of discrimination and oppression as well because we're also fucking concerned all the time about making sure that men feel okay yeah. when we talk about feminism. I'm not. So, you know, no, but I mean, you sit there in panels and you have women say things like, oh, well, of course I'm not talking about the men in this room. The men in this room are all so wonderful and thank you all so much for turning up. It's just wonderful. Women, can you please stand up and give a round of applause to the men for being here? And I feel like this is this sort of like constant need to mollycoddle and placate and sort of massage the egos of men who even take a passing interest in gender equality. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, look at this room. The yeah. vast majority of people in here are women. And maybe, yes, there's like 10% of the room is men, but the majority of men who like to talk about being supportive of gender equality and like to talk about supporting women won't go out to listen to women speak. They won't tune into radio shows and TV shows that are helmed by women. They don't think that the concerns of women are their concerns because it's still... They don't read books written by women or they about don't women. Read. And when women talk about these things, talk about the importance in Australia of things like the Stella Prize. And yes, that's not going to change the world, but it is fundamentally important to recognise that awards and, and literature and culture is presented in a very masculine lens, that the stories of women aren't valued. The stories of women, and, that's, and I use that term broadly, the stories of women are put on the periphery, but then the stories of women of colour are put even further on the periphery. The, women, the stories of trans women are almost ignored entirely. The stories of disabled women are absolutely made invisible. That when you talk about those things, not only are you being oversensitive, not only are you making a problem where there is none, but then you're crazy, you're hysterical, you're man-hating, and we're right back at the beginning. Mm. So we have to really radically push for our voices to be heard and we have to be a lot braver about saying, I don't care what you think about my, my truth and the way that I'm putting it out there. I'm still going to say it and you can think that I'm crazy, but when the world changes, you're going to be the one who's left behind mm. and that's what they're afraid of. I always hate it when people say, is feminism in need of a rebrand? 
No, it's not a brand. It's a revolutionary movement. It's meant to make people feel uncomfortable. That's its job. <laughs> Elizabeth, it's interesting, and, and you and I are of a similar age. I think we're almost exactly the same age. And I remember in the 90s in particular, there was this real trope that was out there about feminism. Feminism's been done, it's been successful, everybody's equal now, we don't need to pay attention to it, it's all over. It was a great movement. Oh, it's a great <laughs> movement! But don't need it anymore. <clears throat> but that has completely changed. Now we've gone back to feminism's going too far, feminism's crazy, women are taking over, it's men who are oppressed now. I mean, I'm yeah, talking yeah, yeah. in extremes, but <laughs> that's, that's quite a lot of this kind of language. Why do you think the change? Why did we go from, oh, look, it's lovely that ladies are equal now, to... We hate you bitches, stop causing trouble. Why? Why did, why did the tone change? Oh, look, I, I mean, who knows, I suppose. But in my optimistic moments, I think it's a kind of last gasp of the, of the dragon um, and that it's happened b because feminism was being successful and women were making genuine improvements in their lives and lots. Um, and so, I mean, I think it is true that it's genuinely older men? I don't know whether that's really reasonable. Um, I, I mean, no, I, no, I can tell you, it, it's a lot of young men as well. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, and I, it's hard to, it's impossible really to, to know these things for sure. But I, I mean, there are some heartening things. I know a number of young men, including doctors, who work for female bosses and with genuine respect and um, reverence, actually, for their minds. Mm. Um, so that sort of thing is happening. And I, had, I recently wrote um, a novel about a children, a children's book about a, with a girl, an adventurous girl lead who is, gets in trouble because she's too brave. And I have been talking to school kids and one group of kids, um, I think it was Darlinghurst Primary, so a mixed group. And I said to some of the boys, some of the boys um, read it and loved it. And I said to some of the others who hadn't read it, well, so would you read a book um, about a girl uh, girl lead, and they go, oh, yeah, 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 well, maybe. It depends. And I say, what does it depend on? And they said, well, you know, if it's about, um, you know, nail polish and relationships, no. <laughs> but if it's, if it's a good story... There's so many children's um, books about sure. nail polish. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's how yeah. girls think of... Boys think of girls, and yeah. um, to some extent, that's reasonable because it's a girl yeah. concern. Uh, so so uh, maybe there's grounds for optimism. I like to think so amongst younger people. It's, it's, I think it's very hard to say, but, you know, I think it is, it, it is true that people will be interested in what they're going to be interested in. So if you're talking about literature, you can't make people read books no. they don't want to read. That can't be done, even when they're seven. Uh, certainly not when they're 30 or 40. Mm -hmm. So... Um, but, well, we... but why, is it that, why is it that girls seem to have no problem reading stories well, in which I boys are the heroes <laughs> or, or, the, or watching movies in which boys are the heroes. Girls had no problem reading Harry Potter. And yet Go if that was Harriet Potter... Or Hermione, more, as it should Or Hermione been. Granger. My, my, I think um, that, that supports my thesis that... Mm. Uh, and I actually think that the conversation was couched too much in terms of men and women and should be talked about more in terms of male and female thinking, which is not the same thing, um, because... It's about kinds of minds and kinds of thinking. And um, women, I think, and men, 
men and women tend to think differently, but women can have male-type minds and men can... Women, the other way around. Um, so the masculine and feminine principle rather than... Principle. Or, yeah, yeah. And I think the feminine principle is more... Um, I think it's certainly arguable. I would say demonstrable is more empathetic and more intuitive and perhaps more... I don't know whether sort of EQ is, is the useful term there, but there are, I think there are different ways of thinking and I think that's a good thing. Um, it's not something that feminism's been concerned to deny for decades, but I think that's wrong. I think we should recognise difference and, and um, enjoy it and admire it. And so I think that the reason girls are better at reading boys' books is because girls are better at understanding boy characters. Women are better understanding men than men are understanding women, I believe. I but mean, maybe that's a dangerous statement, but I no, think No, I think you've got a point, but what I would like to point out is that's probably true of all subordinate cultures. Subordinate yes, cultures I think necessarily that's true. That may be have a to understand of repression. the mm. powerful. The powerful mm. don't need to understand the powerless that's for right. obvious reasons. Mm. So if you're in a subordinate culture, you, you are, I but, would but guarantee black people in America know more about white people than white people know about black people for obvious reasons. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think that's absolutely true, but I also think that the argument we need to make is that female-type thinking needs to become more prevalent yeah, in, in order for us to yeah. be... Well, in all of us, yeah. perhaps. Um, and maybe we seem to need to be better at putting those two things together in order to... You don't think so? I completely disagree. <laughs> Good. And Excellent. I love and a panel. I, I, I think that it's... I, I do think that men and women are living in a world in which masculinity and femininity are constructed in, in a very strict binary and there is this idea then that men and women think differently. I don't believe that that's true. Um, I didn't say that. But then, but then I didn't I'm, say that. I didn't say, I said no, that I think you are... Male, there's male-type thinking, thinking and female-type thinking, but it's not necessarily but if, but practiced female, by men and women. Female type is, if female-type I think my brain, for example, is quite masculine uh, in its type. For, for, I just, so I think that, you know, the spectrum of actual people is very broad and nuanced and finely calibrated, well, but... Well, sure. I mean, I think that there's, we need to there's, there's a, a broad range of, of different kinds of, of mm. thinking, and I think that we are ultimately most instructed by the culture and the society that we live in, and we will respond very... With, you know, humans are very malleable in terms of the way that we think about things. And, you know, to... I, I have to disagree with the idea that somehow, whether or not it's, it's by men and women or female and male thinking, that somehow female thinking is more intuitively designed to understand male characters. Because I don't think that that's actually true. I think that what, what is true is that we live in a world which ultimately and fastidiously prioritises men's stories as being individual, important, interesting, um, universal. The, uh, the, the white man is the universal story, you know, and no one seems to have a problem with saying that everyone should be able to relate to mm, this. That's true. That movie, The Impossible, was made about the aftermath mm. of the tsunami and it was based on a true story and it was about a Spanish family. But they cast Naomi Watts and Ewan McGregor in it, and they were all sort of this lovely blonde white family, and when producers were asked about this, they said, oh, well, we wanted it to be a universal tale. So the experience of white blonde people is somehow considered universal mm. to the experience of being yeah, human. Yeah, no, I agree with you. That's totally right. But I, the reason that I've, I've come to this idea of different kinds of thinking is because I think when you talk about patriarchy, for example, it sounds kind of benign. It sounds like a fathery thing and that's kind of nice and looking after us. It's not like that at all. I think that what's happened, and particularly through the 20th century, 
is that male-type thinking has become hugely dominant. And that's a kind of... It's not just about oppressing women. It's about the same attitude to landscape and to air and to pollution and everything. It's like, nuke it. All just, the, yeah. Or all those okay, babies pointing up to the sky. So, uh, so it seems to me that that's what we need to address. It's a kind of thinking. Well, sure, but I want to, I want to make the point and moving away from, from what type of thinking there is. <laughs> the, again, one of the reasons why... The, this idea that women and girls are somehow more capable of, of being interested in or understanding an experience that's different to them, and that boys just don't want to read about girls or, or men don't want to just... They just don't want to watch movies about girls. You know, in 2011, Disney released... And yes, Disney, I know, it's not like a bastion of feminist thinking. But good. Disney, that's a good Disney thing. Disney released a movie about Rapunzel. And the story was about Rapunzel. And Rapunzel was the girl who lived in the, the tower and had the, the you know, the hundred feet of hair. And this was a movie that had only 13% of its crew were women. Um, only two of its speaking characters were women in a cast of uh, 16 male speaking characters. There were 36 credited voices on that film and only 13 of them had names that were perceptibly female. Um, and that was including the chorus. And this movie, producers thought, because it was about Rapunzel, they didn't want to call it Rapunzel because they thought that boys would think it wasn't for them. So they changed the title to Tangled. They wrote a male character in and gave him equal kind of billing on the poster so that boys would think that this was a story that they could watch. Now, that's not about male and female thinking. That's about the persistent idea that there are somehow stories that are accessible to everybody and that boys are so, like, so difficult to kind of get them to be interested in any world outside of their own that we need to actually change the title of things. We need to address the fact that, despite the fact that this movie is completely underwhelmed by female characters and underwhelmed by female crew members, that it is still too female for boys to be interested in watching. So we need to change it and make it accessible to them. No one ever talks about making the world accessible for girls. No one talks about making pop culture and storytelling accessible to girls. Instead, we're told that our stories are niche, that they're not interesting, that no one wants Soft. to... As, as I read a screenwriter... Uh, reflect on her time that she was studying at UCLA, studying screenwriter underneath some fairly prominent people, men working in the industry, and she didn't name this person, but she was writing scripts, and she said that she wrote scripts that passed the Bechdel test. And if anyone who doesn't know the Bechdel test, it's basically where a, a movie or a story has to pass three rules. And the first one is that there has to be at least two women in it who talk to each other about something other than a man. And it is funny when you first hear it, but when you apply that test to books and movies, particularly popular books and movies, it is very, very rare that they will pass that test. And so she was writing these scripts about women, you know, complicated female characters who weren't always likeable and who didn't actually fit under the banner of the strong female character, which basically just means a wise-cracking sidekick who can use a gun. With tits. With tits, who will be the reward for the hero at the end. Um, and she went, she wasn't getting very good remarks or responses or, or marks for her scripts. And she went to her professor and she said, look, what am I doing wrong? I, I, I need some help. And he was very reticent to talk to her. And then finally she kept pushing and pushing. And he said to her, your scripts have too many women in them. No one wants to watch a movie about women sitting around talking about whatever it is women talk about. And this is actually the problem. It's not about male and female thinking, or it's not about the difference between male and female thinking. It is about 
the fact that it is considered totally acceptable to talk about stories that aren't about white men as being somehow uninteresting to everyone else, that no one wants that to watch a movie. That is my thinking. <laughs> yeah. you, I, I think I, I you're think, agreeing with me. I think, I think you are agreeing with each other in a way. Mm. I, it's interesting. Um, I once saw a program called The Fight to be Male, really interesting series about the fact that all fetuses start out female. And it's only when the Y chromosome turns on that a fetus becomes male. It's why men have residual nipples. It's why they're there. And the interesting point of that is that masculinity is shakier than, than mm. being female. Mm. So men There's have no a lot of trouble empathising. Like, yeah. we have to help them in a little way because these residual nipples, they're scared. Um, <laughs> That's not an excuse, but it may be a reason. It's not a good enough excuse. Gina Riley, uh, Gina Davis, rather, the movie star, is doing some very good work in this area with pointing out to producers how few, particularly in children's movies, how few protagonists are female, how few female characters they are. Um, uh, Finding Nemo's hilarious, the only female character in the whole film. There's no female fish in the sea at all. God yeah. knows how they are. You know, no wonder they're going extinct. Um, uh, is uh, a, a fish that can't remember anything from one minute to the next. It's a fantastic right. image for young girls. <laughs> now, I want to throw it open to the floor. Um, if you want to ask questions, yes, we have already have one over here. Good on you. Hi. Um, I have a question for Elizabeth and Clementine um, in relation to um, male champions. Um, I've lived overseas for the last decade in Bangladesh and <laughs> Cambodia, and so I don't know some of these journalists or the fright back discussion and so forth. What attracted me to this session was um, the discussion about outspoken women and, you know, and, and your title. In the work that I've been working on in terms of giving women voice, you have to engage with men. You have to engage with the power holders, whether it's government, private oh, yeah. sector, whatever it is. What I found in the discussion this morning, I went to the session on um, how to be a feminist. Um, I found there was undertones of us and them and a lot of absolutes and generalisations. You know, when we break the patriarchy, all women need to be on it, you know. And there wasn't for me, um, you know, the shades of grey that are there. And, and what I found is when you do, you know, when you are successful in very small ways, I'm not undermining, you know, I'm not underplaying the huge challenges we have in Australia and other countries, is you've got to have male champions. You've got to have, you know, men uh, willingly or unwillingly willing to make those changes, whether it's Do reducing we... violence against women, whether it's, you know, all the other myriad of social and economic injustices that are taking place. Now, um, we've talked about these sort of two journalists. I just wanted to ask Elizabeth and Clementine about sort of, um, you know, males that are championing gender equality, whether it's this discussion or other broader discussions that are taking place, you know, either in Australia or elsewhere. Because you made a point, um, Clementine, about not, there being not many men in the audience. There were six women on this panel this morning. Why wasn't there a man on the discussion about feminism? You know, mm. we can't Why just take half be? the world. Why should there be a man on the panel? Because feminism women, is not women just... Women given so little space to speak publicly and so little respect for what we have to add. I, I appreciate and respect what you're saying, but why do we have to call men who take even a passing interest in gender equality champions? Why do they have to be rewarded with titles that make them feel good about themselves? To me, that just it's just replicating patriarchy. It's again. about inclusiveness. We heard it's this morning one of the panel members say that oh, male CEOs are lazy and they delegate everything. I mean, I know male and female CEOs that work very hard. I just think these generalisations aren't helpful. They're fine in an academic circle, but when we're talking about actually making change, we can't stick with these theories. We've got to get to involving everyone. Um, 
I find this really difficult. I'm torn because on the one hand, you know, someone said recently, feminism is only as strong as the men who support it. And I think, oh, yeah, that's just, really? Like, if men took away their support, uh, the whole thing would collapse. Well, they've taken away their support many times and it hasn't collapsed well, over it hasn't, 300 years. But, but we haven't got there. But I, I mean, I agree with you to the extent that clearly it's about working together. And I actually think that's one reason why the idea of male and female thinking is useful, because, it, because I think it's actually by bringing those things together that we make the best human race we can be. And I think that's really important. Um, and I think that's the way we have a future as a species, frankly. Um, but uh, I also am... I mean, I'm conscious that generalisations are necessary in this discussion because you have to be able to talk about what's typical for women and what's typical for men. And we know that generalisations are applied to women. We know that you know, male surgeons are demanding sex from female surgeons because they're women. It's not just general. They're not doing it... I, there might be a well, bit. there may be some. There might be some, <laughs> but you know, broadly speaking, it's the the um, the prejudice is generalising, and so to some extent, probably the response needs to as well. But but uh, I totally agree with you that we need to find ways of working creatively together. So I think it's really difficult. The idea of a champion makes me a little bit allergic because I I'm thinking you know Malcolm Turnbull's going to be like saying women are okay. It's just like icky. I think, um, but I think one, you know, women, one of the women are never rewarded for the work that they do in feminism. Women receive threats. We were, you know, particularly well, we women now it, who, who work in the online, online arena. It's not uncommon for us to be threatened with rape, with violence, with even with murder. Anita Sarkeesian is here and she has to have a security detail because of the work that she's doing. Mm. I don't understand well, why women are consistently punished for doing the, the work of our own liberation. And men are expected to be rewarded. And we have, we have women saying, oh, well, we need to engage them, we need to engage them. I've been writing about feminism for the last 15 years, and for a good chunk of that, I was very much of the mindset, oh, you know, I have to acknowledge and respect the men who are <laughs> present, and of course I'm not talking about you, you know, and I'd like to acknowledge that most men are good, decent men. Not only, okay, look, in terms of if you write an, uh, an opinion piece, as Elizabeth and Jane and I all do, it's 800 to 1,000 words. If you're spending 150 words of every piece reassuring the men and women <laughs> reading that you're not talking about all men, not only are you taking space and time and energy away mm. from your argument, but I can tell you it actually doesn't make a difference. I, I have been equally as abused for acknowledging mm. men and for acknowledging mm. the decency and goodness of men and for saying, isn't it just wonderful that men are here and that they're doing the work of feminism, as I have been now for just saying, you know what, I'm not interested in placating men's feelings anymore. Great that you've turned up, now do the work. My, my, simple, <laughs> test, my simple test is this. If this was our panel about black people and their struggle for equal rights, would someone get up and say, you must stop alienating white people. You have to bring them along with you. And if well, we I think actually people do say that. But, well, but, but how would it you be? You would hope to find. I, I, I believe that I'm. I try to be a supportive ally to Aboriginal Australians yeah. and particularly Aboriginal feminists. But God, if someone tried to call me a champion yeah, or like exactly. give me a title, I'd be deeply embarrassed. It's a good test. And I don't know why these men aren't deeply embarrassed yeah. to it's be. What I'm trying, the point it. I'm trying to make is it's a good test. Would you ask the same thing? Would you have white champions of change 
for uh, Indigenous people, I think we'd all go, that's a little bit icky. Um, or able-bodied champions of change for disabled people. Now, they may exist and that's great, but actually we would feel that that was an odd thing to do. It's a good test as to whether we are applying a slightly sexist measure mm. to the way we should talk about yes. that thing. I do want to move on from this question to this lady over here. Um, Hi, I'm Madeleine. Um, just quickly on the male and female thinking, which I think is really interesting. If you look up um, feminine investing as a style, I think that's a really interesting way, whereas like Warren Buffett is considered to be a feminine investor because he takes a long-term view. So that might help that's her out. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I just yeah. had a question about um, whenever I seem to call out, say, sexism or misogyny, um, even to enlightened people, it's... I think there's such distaste that mm. they don't... ..that it brings us backwards. Like, I had a mm. situation in where I could see that this group of men in an investing environment, that there was an element that I was a young woman and that was going on. When I called it out to my male manager, it's like he didn't want to see that because it would just... He's like, no, we live in an enlightened workplace. This can't be happening. And not acknowledging when those things happen puts it further back. And I see this happening quite a lot, that even with my male friends, if I say to them, oh, well, that was straight misogyny, they go, oh, it's like you're overreacting. And I feel like a fright bat. <laughs> um, I, I think you're right. When you call it out, people are going to get upset. But I don't think that's a sign of failure. I think it's really important, and, and actually what Clem was saying just now, that people abuse her for saying this or for saying that. That's a sign of success. Yes, it when is. people get cross, it's working. And we have to recognise it's because we're brought up to be nice girls that we think if we're upsetting people, that's going backwards. It's not. You know, black people didn't go, oh, we mustn't upset the white people. If you see the Martin Luther King film, you know, the scene on the, the bridge, they, they finally confronted the white police with the absolute horror of what they had to do, which is shoot un unarmed, you know, people. So uh, you, it's just don't be afraid of upsetting them. Call them. You know, and oh, I do. I it. definitely do call um, them. Yeah, but I just think we all have to. And it's like cycling. It is like cycling because you, the minute you say everything's like cycling. The minute, yeah, it is. The minute you say, okay, it's upsetting people. I better get off the road. Then the roads stay dangerous, and and they stay hating you, and then you're on the footpath. But I feel like there's such a line of people who say they're enlightened are still so mm. uncomfortable about talking about yeah. these issues. It's but, like they so think we we've come far enough. More, not but that's less. because yeah. you, they can get away with saying that. Yeah. You know, because it's the difference between legislative progress, progression, progress, and mm. social progress. That you can, yes, women are legally allowed to vote now. But does that mean that everyone mm. thinks that women should be able to vote? Of course not. Mm. There is this m misconception that somehow legal rights and legal equality takes away and eradicates all of those ideas about... Yeah, women in Australia, not in all states, but women in some parts of Australia are legally allowed to have a, an abortion. But does that mean that people are going right. to allow mm. them to do it without judging them for their reproductive choices? Does that mean that they're going to let them have more than one? Mm. You know, if you, if you admit to having had more than one abortion, oh, well, one's OK, but haven't <laughs> you heard of contraception? You know, there are, there are all these sort of social ideas. And I think that it's really important what you're saying, Elizabeth, that this idea of fright bat, the reason why it's, it is a word and, the, and why the pathology of women's anger is so successful mm. is because women are trained to be nice girls. Mm. Women are trained to be docile. Women are told, even from very young ages, not to get angry and aggressive. Mm. Um, we have to embrace our anger 
and understand that there's nothing wrong with being angry and that people will push back against it and that's where all the hysteria and the crazy mm. comes from. I've been angry a few times on this panel today. <laughs> and, and there is the temptation there to sit and be quiet and polite and nice. Mm. And, and we we're, we're punished mm. for being angry in a way that men just are never punished We're meant to caretake other people's emotions, to do the emotional caring work of everyone in the room, make sure everybody yeah. feels good. And so mm. what's happening with your workplace is that there's the illusion of equality and you're supposed to play your part, which mm. is you're supposed to... Sustain that illusion. Sustain mm. this illusion and not cause any waves because enough has been done, not everything has been done, but enough has been done to make you feel comfortable. And that enough is basically that you're allowed to be in the workplace. <laughs> and, and get paid that, 18 to 45% less yeah. than the guy sitting at the anything desk. Anything beyond that is you being greedy and aggressive. I mean, mm. look at even, even the uh, difference in terms of who gets to speak on panels. Q&A is a big... Um, what's the right word that's not going to get me in trouble. Uh, Q&A is very example? bad at this. Q&A is very bad at this. And actually, I find that this is an attitude that is quite prominent from the left about the ABC, is that somehow the ABC, because it's our national broadcaster and because it's constantly fielding accusations from the government and from the right, that it's this terrible haven of left-wing thinking, etc., that somehow it's this glorious utopia and that women have a place on the ABC that they just don't anywhere else. The ABC has exactly the same statistical breakdown when it comes for, for women being on radio, for be women being on TV shows, for women being paid as anywhere else, as any other commercial networks. Q&A consistently has two female panellists to three male panellists plus Tony Jones. And that represents, this goes back to the representation of women mm. and the way that we see the world reflected back at us. It means that we're mostly, yes, sometimes they change and challenge that, but mostly we're seeing a world in which women occupy 50% of... And my maths aren't very good. Um, women occupy half of the space that, that men occupy. And so women, when, when they take slightly more than that, somehow they're being domineering and aggressive. And a really good example of that was when Catherine Devaney appeared on Q&A with Peter Jensen. And Chris Stevenson, who's an excellent writer from Queensland, did a, a breakdown of the statistical percentages of, of time that Catherine spoke for, the times that she interrupted. Because after that, because she was being... Um, not even hostile, because she was disagreeing with the Archbishop. <laughs> she was abused. She received terrible, terrible vitriolic abuse from people that she was... She'd interrupted him consistently. She was domineering. She was rude. She was abrasive. And what Chris actually found was that when you have a panel of um, five speakers, egalitarianism would tell you that those five speakers should have 20% of the, the mm. speaking time. She actually spoke for, it was either 17 or 19%, so mm. less than her share. Peter Jensen spoke for twice as much time as her, interrupted people more than anyone else on the panel, <laughs> and um, was really actually the one who dominated because Catherine's a woman and she's an outspoken woman and she's not everyone's cup of tea. She creates those waves mm. where, where men just don't. Mm. They say 30, as soon as there are three women out of 10, 30%, a lot of men get very nervous. And they mm. start to say women are taking over, mm. there's too many women, this feminism thing's mm. gone too far, you know. And that's actually where... That's three out of 10. That's where representation ends. Yeah. Across the board, women account for 30% to 70% of representation. That's right. Mm. Another question. Uh, hi, I'm Ali. Um, I'm currently doing my HSC and I'm doing a focus study um, on a major work and my thesis is feminism has stalled. Now, I'm out to 
basically be proven wrong here. But my question is, do you think it has the movement ceased to have a massive impact on the wider society? I think just the opposite. Yeah, so do I. I think that um, feminism always comes in, in waves and, and not necessarily the second and third wave. I mean that the backlash always comes in waves and the backlash always figures out a way to recreate itself depending on, on what the limits of the time are. So now feminism has, you know, certainly through the 90s and through the early part of the 2000s, it was really easy for newspaper headlines to be published saying that feminism is over, young women aren't interested. This is the same repeated kind of cycle of diminishing and dismissing feminist thought and also dismissing young women who were interested and involved in feminism. But now that we have social media and, and feminists can connect with each other in a way that uh, it's impossible to silence, firstly, you've got people like Tony Abbott calling himself a feminist. Because, <laughs> really? Because, I mean, as much Margie as I... added him all over town as a feminist so he could get elected. Because he likes so our fault. No, but as, as, as much as I disagree with the, pro yeah. the prospect that he even could be, it signifies an enormous amount of power that it's, it's actually beneficial for him to say it. Mm. You mm. know, because 10, 15 years ago, there would be no need for him to come out and say that. It would be just be assumed that it was a ridiculous kind of equation. Whereas now, I think actually that the biggest, one of the biggest challenges facing the popularity of feminism is the increased commercialisation of it. Mm. That actually it's being co-opted by capitalist structures mm. to sell products. Joy oh yeah. Mm. Soon as something mm. goes mainstream, that's mm. how you can tell. Beyonce. Mm. Mm, big sign of <laughs> feminism. Personally, I think that's a good thing, but there, Clem and I probably differ. Elizabeth, what do you think? Oh, look, uh, I'm conscious of time, but I think it's... I do think, I agree, I think it's becoming cool again. Um, not before time. But I, I think that Emma Watson thing was amazing. Um, and, you know, I just think it, all it takes is for young women to recognise that things are not what they seem. Mm. And it starts to happen again. And I see lots of young women applying their minds to this and working out how to say it. I mean, I also see women saying, I'm not a feminist, but, you know, and that happens a lot and it breaks my heart um, because we should be going, so I'm a feminist, it's cool. Uh, but I think, that'll, I think that'll happen. I do. Interestingly enough, Tony Abbott is a feminist and Julie Bishop <laughs> isn't. <laughs> I, I, I always find it really interesting that powerful men now can say they're feminists, but powerful women have to be very careful. This indicates a really interesting situation. We've got a way to go. Yeah, yeah I look, I think feminism is roaring back on the agenda. Ten years ago, I wrote a, a book with the word feminist in the title, couldn't sell a cracker of it. <laughs> now, look at this. Look at all these festivals. Mm. Look at what's going on. You put feminist up there in front of it and it sells like buggery. We may despise that as a measure, but it's a pretty cold-hearted, uh, clear-eyed measure of where the feminism is. Yeah. <laughs> Question. Uh, my name's Karen. I'm quite interested in the representation of women in politics and I'm just wondering what your views are on whether you think it's time for a political party based yes. solely on a getting more women in parliament. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't we do it? I mean, why don't we do it? Yeah. I have suggested it. Why would we not? I've been thinking. I've been, been thinking about this a lot. People say to me, "Okay, so why don't all the kind of good people in the world just start a party?" And you know, all the decent, honest people. And I think most of them are women. <laughs> no, that's not. I mean, that's obviously not the truth. But I was thinking um, today or yesterday, thinking a, a women's party could really do something. Could actually do some stuff. Um, just, I suppose it's partly. You know, Borgen, and I think 
why can't politicians tell the truth ever? You know, why is that actually impossible to do in public life? Why can you not say, you know, this is what we're going to do? No, we're not going to do that because that's too difficult. We're going to do this and do it. I don't know, I really, I know that sounds naive and stupid, but I honestly think if a democracy is there, we should just grab it and call it our own. You know, I don't Claire? see why not. Oh, look, I, I have nothing to add. I mean, if, if they can get fishing and motorsports enthusiasts into the Senate, then... <laughs> <laughs> we should be able to turn down. We should be able to get a few women in there. Yeah, exactly. I think we really poss possibly have time for one last... Sorry? <laughs> oh, yeah. Anyone can have any kind of shed they like, as far as I'm concerned, just so long as I don't have to go into it. Um, yeah, yes. just, I'm just um, going to inquire of, from you guys as the panel. What is it with, like, woman feminists such as Jermaine Greer, who has to make comments about Julia Gillard and just, just to highlight her backside? Do you find that females in themselves undermine other females? <laughs> I think that... Um, <laughs> Well, firstly, I want to make the point that I, I don't feel like I need to agree with every single thing that a woman says to, to agree with other things that she said. There are some things that Jermaine Greer have said that I absolutely am polar opposites mm. to. But I respect the fact that when she was younger than I was, she wrote a book that helped to change the world and encouraged women to leave abusive husbands and made them feel like that was the important thing to do. And there's lots and lots of things that you could say about Jermaine Greer um, I believe that women are not each other's own worst enemies, but I think that we live in a world that teaches us to be each other's own worst enemies. And critiquing the way that other women look is... Look, fundamentally, we live in a patriarchy and we're all trying to figure out our own way to negotiate our way through that. And we make choices that are not always the right choices. Um, we... Look, I'm going to be fright batty and just jump in because I'm just busting to say, it's my least favourite question. Don't you think women are their own worst enemies? I've written a long article about it. You might like to look at it. It gives all the points why I think that that's not true. But the one thing I want to say to you is this. Women are no nicer or more reasonable than men are. And it is sexist to think that they should be. They will be just as selfish, just as rude, just as silly. And you know what? We'll have true equality when we're allowed to be fucking fried bats. And that's perfectly all right for us to be selfish, hard-ass and miserable, just like the blokes. We don't have to be nicer to one another than men are to one another. And let me tell you, men do not support each other in com competition or in workplaces, even nearly as much as women do, and still we give a woman a hard time if she sets out to make her own way. No, not, not true. But ladies, I also I? feel that with like other females that would, uh, you know, there's a lot of females that would go out with a, a, a girl's husband or, you know, the well, stealing of guess what? all that sort of Women behavior. are no nicer than men no. and no more moral and nor should they have to be. And if they mm. want to go sleep with their girlfriend's husband, that's between the husband and her. And who made the promise? I promise, said the husband to the wife, <laughs> not the girlfriend. Blame the man. Go on. Sorry, I couldn't stand it. I'm a bad chair, I'm a lousy feminist and I'm a fucking fry <laughs> Um, I just wanted to say this one thing about bottoms. <laughs> 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 I 
Um, you know, I think... Uh, I, I suppose Germaine was wrong to say it, but oh, really, okay. you know... It, I don't think... I mean, you could say Winston Churchill was short and fat. You know, that's OK. I think we should be able to talk about people. You can't say she's a bad Prime Minister because she's got a big bottom. But you can say it's a big bottom. I think that's all right. And so you can do I. say Kevin Rugg's got ridiculous apple cheeks. And you can say, you can talk about Tony people. Tony Abbott's got weird I don't, ears. I think, um, I think we've got a kind of bottom police. I tried to write something about Tony Abbott's ass and, and I wasn't allowed to say it. And I just think, it was a Jesus, joke. Elizabeth, writing a column about Tony Abbott's ass. No, 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 it was a lie. That's like really scary. <laughs> it was a very small ass, very small. <laughs> Maybe also, you know, firstly, <laughs> we've run out the point. It's not necessarily a criticism to say that someone has a big ass. I have a big ass. I could stand it's up okay. here and any one of yeah. you would agree with me. You know, it's not, it, it shouldn't be a criticism yeah, for, that's what for I agree a woman with. to mm. be fat. Mm. That yeah. shouldn't be a bad thing to be. And that's one of the things but that you should be allowed hopefully to say feminism it. works to try and dismantle. But secondly, I, um, I don't think that the question, I, I mean, that's, that can't be. The, the fixation on where no. feminism is at now. No. It is not the biggest yeah. issue facing women whether or not Jermaine Greer said that Julia Gillard has a big ass. Um, also, there we are, don't there are have to be nice. We don't have to be nice. Yeah, yeah, we the should write that The pressure constantly is, mm. oh, you weren't very nice. Oh, you said something so nasty about, you did this, you did... Oh, fuck off. It's not about nice. It's not about nice. <laughs> I'm a horrible person, mm. frankly, you know, but I have every right to be. And so do you, and so do you, and so do all of you. But and I, think we, you I think we need to remember that, um, and I've said it, I don't know yeah. if I've said it in this panel, but I've certainly said it a few times today, <laughs> but women are not each other's biggest enemies. No. You know, we can, we can be very nasty to each other, for sure, but we're living in a world underneath an oppressive structure that is far more damaging to us than individual women can be. Mm. And so we can disagree and we can yell and scream and fight, but fundamentally we need to remember that there is a much bigger enemy and to not get... And I don't want to take away from the fact that people have very legitimate issues with things that certain feminists say, and, and yes, some of the things that Jermaine Greer has said have, <laughs> have been, as I said, complete polar opposites to the way that mm. I view things. I believe, especially on the trans issue, that there's lots of questions to be asked there. Um, I believe that women are women when they identify as being women, you know. That, but these are discussions that we can have and we can have hopefully nuanced kind of evolution of, of thinking on them. When she said that thing, that he was still a man, but anyway. Uh, I, I, <laughs> anyway, we're not... That's another panel. OK, I'm going I'm to put my chair hat on now. <laughs> We have run out of time. I just think we need to we need to keep our eye on the, on the end goal. Well, mm. the problem with the women who are their own worst enemies is it keeps us fighting each other. And actually, we don't need to do that. Subordinate cultures, it's always easier to fight other women than men because we're, pal we're less powerful, we're less scary to one another. But also, you so can't run public life on a principle of no. nice. No, you can't. You know, it's just no. not about that. No. True. Sure, but not nice. Nice, nice is not no, going to take no. us there. Nice is an ice and a cup of tea. <laughs> and that's fine. I'd rather have something really, really fattening and a glass of very strong alcohol. Um, <laughs> right now. Right now. We have to call this to a halt, despite the fact that we fright bats and lunatics and crazy people and not very nice. Um, thank, please join me in thank thanking these coming. wonderful women. <laughs> <laughs>